welcome to this week's episode of Not D&D, brought to you by EM World Live. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Jessica, and joining this, me this week, we have Connor Alexander from Coyote and Crow Games. Connor, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. And I'm excited to ask you questions, um, because I, when I first learned about Coyote and Crow, I was very excited, and... Um, it looks so amazing and fantastic. Uh, and then I read through, enjoyed the game so much. And so did so many other people because you've picked up just a couple of awards in the last couple of years. Uh, so we've had the Diana Jones Award for Excellence in Gaming, the Crit Awards, uh, Tabletop Awards. Uh, I'm sure there's more I'm missing because I think your trophy cabinet is so full now. So the first thing I want to say is congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was, yeah, it was, that was not planned by any means, but I'm thrilled to be acknowledged. Fantastic. Uh, well, so obviously the main thing we are going to be talking about is Coyote and Crow uh, yeah. this episode. But before uh, we talk about the game, I would like to talk a little bit about you and get to know you. Sure. Um, so your history with role-playing games, what's the first role-playing game that you can remember playing? Oh, it, well, I mean, it was absolutely D&D, right? It was classic. It was, yeah, classic basic edition <laughs> D&D in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, mm -hmm. But it was it was really rapidly that I, I, I don't want to say, eh, maybe tired of that is is not a um, not the way to, best way to put it. But I grew mm -hmm. beyond D&D pretty rapidly. And of course, mm -hmm. my other selections that were available were the other things that TSR was putting out, things like sure. Gamma World and Boot Hill and all of those early sort of D&D spinoffs. Um, mm -hmm. But by the time the late 80s rolled around, I was playing things like Rifts from Palladium. Um, and then wow. you know, early 90s, I was playing um, Cyberpunk 2020 and nice. Empire of the Masquerade. Um, mm -hmm. So it was it, really quickly, I, like I, I love the fantasy genre, but I'm more of a sci-fi guy. So mm -hmm. I, it was it was for me, it was D&D was just the quick gateway drug into all of these other games that I, I wanted yeah. to play. I think that's the case for a lot of people as well. So yeah. I think, yeah, you start off with D&D because it's the most known thing. And then you're like, okay, this is storytelling games can be a whole thing. And so you go out and explore that. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting to see that you have like a range of different systems uh, that that you know and loved and played. And I think that shows in the kind of the game design. So we'll, we'll come back to talking about the system yeah. a little bit later as well. Um, but you... Uh, Talking about your your background with games, you're obviously somebody that played a lot of games and enjoyed games. And then in 2014, you joined the hobby game industry. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that and what your career history has been like working in hobby games? Because a lot of people listening and watching perhaps have aspirations to do that themselves. Yeah, so I, I I was not ever I never had my sights set on on working in the game industry. I was happy as just a player. Um, mm -hmm. And a consumer. Um, I my degrees in film and television. I worked in mm -hmm. the, the film industry for a long time, and then later in marketing. Um, and then I I live in Seattle, and there was a there was a sort of a, uh, a economy bust out here in around 2012, and I got laid off. Mm -hmm. And um, a friend of mine knew a, a game shop that was opening up, and they needed employees. And I took the job mm -hmm. really out of desperation. I wasn't really mm -hmm. interested in going back to retail after years of being a waiter and, and working in service industry. I didn't want to go back mm -hmm. to that. I, I felt like I had grown beyond doing mm -hmm. that. And um, but but then I found myself working there and absolutely loving it, and uh -huh. being the manager, ended up being the manager there, and and really. Um, finding a new perspective on the game industry uh, and and where it had come from. I was I'm old enough that a lot of my game history was spent around uh, a table at home with my friends and mm -hmm. being in this environment where I was seeing much more 
um, organized play efforts and more uh, growth in the hobby in a way that I never really experienced. Things like um, Friday Night Magic, uh, Magic the Gathering, mm -hmm. uh, or um, groups of people playing Dungeons and Dragons or other RPGs at the game store. It completely reinvigorated my love for the hobby industry, the hobby gaming industry. Um, and a couple of years later, I was recruited to work for a distributor called PSI uh, that kind of, yeah. sort of works behind the scenes. And mm -hmm. um, and that gave me, again, a whole new vantage point, um, seeing things from a publisher perspective and really getting to learn the industry in and outs and, and how this whole industry works, uh, all, the, all the little cogs behind the curtain, as it were. And... Um, and and that just inspired me even further. And then I started to realize that that maybe I had something to contribute. That I wasn't just mm -hmm. gonna be an office worker, you know, have a day job in the game industry. That I that my creativity, which normally had come through uh, through me as an uh, as an outlet for either writing for uh, uh, regular fiction or or for through screenplays in my film and television work, that maybe I had something else to offer the game industry. Fantastic. Well, that, I think that segues us really nicely into to talking about Coyote and Crow then. Uh, yeah. So I think it's so interesting that you talk about um, your background being in, in film as well and screenwriting, because there's a couple of game designers and, and publishers that have come on that have had that background. And mm. I do think that role-playing games are just another way of telling stories. You're kind of, because if you work in film and TV, you'll think it's, it's a way of telling a story and communicating yeah. a message. And role-playing yeah. games, you're trying to give people the tools to do that themselves at their own home tables. So Absolutely. I think that's interesting. I'm noticing a common theme with people I interview. So I wanted to, to pick up on that. Yeah. But let's talk about Coyote and Crow, because that, that's sure. why I asked you here. So yeah. if people haven't heard of Coyote and Crow before, how would you like to introduce it to them? I like to describe it as a science fantasy RPG. Uh, mm -hmm. So a little, bit of, a little bit of science fiction, a little bit of fantasy um, that is set in an alternate history where colonization of the Americas never happened. Um, and players play as people who are indigenous to the Americas, uh, mm -hmm. set in a futuristic fantasy setting um, that has a whole range of elements to choose from, whether it's uh, mythological uh, and, and indigenous cultural related elements, or some more classic sci-fi elements, uh, you know, advanced technology and things like that. So I think it's, it's a really unique mix out there right now. I don't think there's a whole lot else to compare it to. Um, sure. I've, I've heard both native folks and non-native folks describe it as some sort of like a mix of uh, uh, Wakanda from Black Panther meets mm -hmm. Horizon Zero Dawn, the video game. So that's those are two excellent reference points because what yeah. two amazing pieces of media. Um, but yeah. yeah, so that's okay. That's fantastic to hear. So you. So that's a great pitch for it, by the way, as well. I think Thank you. you can tell you've done this marketing route a few times. <laughs> but um Thinking about the game, how did you come up with the concept for this? So you said you were working more in kind of the logistics, fulfillment, retail mm -hmm. side of the games industry. And then you were like, maybe this is something I could create. How how did that this idea be born? Yeah, so it was it was born out of two sort of core core mm -hmm. conceits. One was is that I was I was not seeing uh, good or any representation really in the game industry for Native Americans. Um, uh, there were a number of games out there that weren't you know, occasionally they were rubber stamped at the end of their creation um, by native consultants as being not offensive, but not offensive is not the same as either accurate or inclusive or good. Um, so mm -hmm. 
I, my, my frustration sort of boiled over and I, and I was at a point where I, I felt like I had um, uh, the time and the resources on the background to sort of put my money where my mouth was and, and contribute something to that discussion. Uh, mm-hmm. The other, the other end of that though, was, is that all of the games that I was seeing uh, out in the industry continually put the spotlight on native Americans in a, in a way that they were always delete, dealing with colonialism in some mm-hmm. form or another, whether it was a Western or a revolutionary war, whatever it was, we were always in context as a reaction to colonialism. And yeah. frankly, for a lot of natives, that's traumatic. Like we continually are having to re-engage with our own traumas. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to do a setting that didn't have to deal with colonialism. And mm-hmm. originally my, my first thought actually was to do something, you know, pre pre-Columbus, uh, pre-colonial contact. But the problem with that is, is that non-natives already have a view of natives as something from the past. And I knew mm-hmm. if this game was going to be successful, it had to speak to more than just native audiences. It had to speak to, to both crowds. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided to crank the thing in the completely the opposite direction and set it in the future. And I was like, how often do, you know, do even natives, do we get to think about ourselves in a futuristic context? We're so often trapped in these positions where we have to deal with our own current day-to-day tragedies. And so I thought, why not, why not give natives, especially native players, something optimistic play in, uh, uh, something that's hopeful um, and, and uh, imaginative. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I, I think it's a fantastic idea because like you say, it, it hits all that for the native audience. But also, even if you're not native, it's a new and different story. Like you say, this story is not out there. So it's something yeah. new to explore. And as people who love games and who love stories, are we not always wanting to create kind of new stories and explore new ideas? Absolutely. So- so I think it works for everybody. So let's let's dive more into the into the setting uh, yeah. of the game. So yeah. uh, it starts very interestingly, like set, you know, in, on the Kickstarter page, it talks about like seven here, seven hundred years ago, an event happened, mm-hmm. and the alternative history. So could could you bring us into the setting and tell us the yeah. story? Yeah. So where where our histories diverge, our real world histories diverge from what happens in Kiting Crow is about seven hundred years ago. Um, a climate disaster happens, and it's it's never specified, uh, you know, to mm-hmm. to uh, exactly what it was. But mm-hmm. the general idea is that that people believe maybe uh, a comet or a meteor hit somewhere else on the Earth, and it completely altered the climate um, so much so that the uh, um, Americas were put into a deep ice age, um, and this forced a lot of trauma and change to all of these cultures that were existing in around the year 1400. Um, and that's sort of where the histories diverge. And so mm-hmm. the other thing that happens is within a few hundred years, people begin noticing this purple mark uh, on themselves, on other animals, on plant life. Basically all biological life has this little sort of purple mark. And it's in the game, it's called the Adenati, um, which is a Cherokee word for the gift. Um, mm-hmm. And and this sort of becomes a, uh, this is sort of where the, the fantasy element comes in. Um, mm-hmm. So fast forward a few hundred years and uh, the, the planet is slowly beginning to heal itself. People have struggled to survive, but that struggle has sort of advanced technology and cultures. Um, things have shifted uh, from what we might've uh, viewed that original, you know, 1400 era history. And 
science has come far enough that people have learned to sort of harness this Adenati, this purple mark, in a way that can give them fantastical abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I wouldn't call call it so far as to describe as like superhero level abilities. No one is mm-hmm. flying around and shooting lasers out of their eyes or anything like that. Um, but it does give players the option to have abilities that might be um, slightly more than what we real humans have and just give them sort of a heroic edge. And mm-hmm. um, and yeah, so that's that's sort of the basis where 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 I, I think the game really shines is its incorporation of um, the spiritual with the uh, technological and mm-hmm. sort of sort of at the point where you're coming into this game, it's maybe about a hundred years from our real future and mm-hmm. the earth is finally healing and the player characters are sort of jumping into this world that is, really about to experience a huge growth spurt for better or worse, because now the planet is more explorable and treaties that used to keep governments um, uh, in line, the reasons for those treaties are sort of falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so you have all of these nation states now that are um, poised to potentially clash with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, so your, your, your characters are coming into this world that are, is, um, is both, uh, um, I, I guess from a, from a certain perspective, secure, like you, everybody in mm-hmm. there in and the main town you start in has all of their basic needs met, but mm-hmm. there's this burgeoning sort of gloom on the horizon um, as, mm-hmm. as characters start to realize that the, the politics and the technology is about to really go explosive uh, and, and potentially change everything. Absolutely. I think it's it's key to highlight that it's not a dystopian setting in, at all, but it's also yeah. not a utopia. It's, it's a, a living, breathing world that, mm-hmm. you know, exists and it has, like you say, problems Absolutely. and politics and opportunities and potential threats. Uh, so yeah. it's a, a living world to step into. Absolutely. Um, creating the world, you had a fantastic team uh, creating uh, this uh, this game. Yeah. Could you talk about how you, how you selected the team and all the different people you had in for, you know, the art, the writing, the development, all those different parts? Yeah, so the the writing team was somebody I brought on. Uh, they were they were folks I brought on board fairly early in my process. Um, I had the the basic structure of sort of the alternate timeline built out, the basic mechanics. But as I started to fill this world out and wanted, I wanted to make it feel lived in and and, and breathable. Um, I realized that just my own perspective as a Cherokee wasn't going to be enough. Um, so I got folks like uh, Wayoti Old Bear and Derek Pounds. Um, and uh, William McKay, a whole bunch of other folks, basically, who had a, a broad array of not only real-world indigenous experience and, and heritage, but, um, mm-hmm. but completely different skill sets from me. Um, you know, we brought in uh, an actual chef to write our chapter on food and restaurants, uh, <laughs> an indigenous chef who has experience yeah. in pre-Columbian foods. Mm-hmm. Um, Derek uh, is Derek Pounds is from Samish Nation, so he has a bunch of experience in the Pacific Northwest and cultures, uh, their their culture up here, um, and so we just brought in a, a wide variety of voices to help flesh mm-hmm. out uh, what this world might look like. Um, I can never thank uh, William McKay enough, who did our work on our fictional in-game language Chahi. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm a deep believer that for every RPG one of the first things I dive in to look at when I'm looking at a new RPG is um, how do they treat language? How do they mm-hmm. treat uh, art and music? 
um, and how do they treat food? Because I, I feel like those are like cultural foundations. So for any fictional mm -hmm. setting, how do you treat those three things? And so for me, it was really important that we get all three of those right. Also because they're important to real world indigenous uh, uh, cultures here in North America. And I, I wanted to capture that importance in this setting. Um, so those writers really helped me flesh it out. Uh, Wayodi uh, is amazing. Um, and she's she's Comanche woman who has never had any RPG experience, but a ton of writing experience. And mm -hmm. she brought in a lot of her ideas and imagination to uh, a lot of the sort of subcultures that are listed in the freelance portion of the book, uh, which is a sort of the middle of uh, modern America is sort of this uh, great open space with all of these different mm -hmm. microcultures. Uh, and she wrote a lot of that material. And it's it's some of my favorite stuff in the book. Fantastic. And yeah. with the uh, the artwork, I yeah. want to talk about the art a little yeah. bit. Well, we will talk about the game system in a bit because I, yeah. I just love the world and, and the creation. Yeah. The artwork in the book, I feel really creates the mood and the environment for the setting. Yeah. I, I've got some of the pictures here just from the Kickstarter yeah. page. So this was yeah. this was the very beginning of, of, of my looking at it, which is why I want to yeah. share them here. So the, what was, it, it was yeah. really important for me to get the art right. Um, A, I wanted as many native artists on board as I could get. Uh, but B, there had to be a sense of infusion of um, uh, indigenous concepts with futurism because there isn't a lot of that out there. And mm -hmm. I think um, I struggled with that, honestly. That was probably the toughest challenge in the entire book was finding artists who had not only that skill set, but the ability to envision that. As, an, as a first time art director, my biggest challenge was fighting with my artists and going, no, you're still not thinking futuristic enough. I had that conversation a lot with my artists. Um, because we, as a, I think, as as Native Americans, are are so in, entrenched with preserving the past. It's one of mm -hmm. our it's one of our strengths that we I think that we try to preserve our culture. But we're, our eyes are so focused on that that mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to get artists to shift to a futuristic perspective. Um, so I, I struggled with that, and I'm really happy that I've had such a good response with it in the end. But finding artists who had um, who had that skill set and who wanted to work in, the, in, in an RPG setting, you're talking about a niche within a niche within a niche within a niche, mm -hmm. right? So it's a very sure. select group of folks that can do that. Um, but I'm so grateful because now I have this great crew of artists who... Um, some of them, you know, moved on and haven't worked with me again, or I didn't want to work with them again. We didn't just didn't communicate or whatever. But there's mm -hmm. a good group of folks from this core book that moved on and worked with me on stories of the freelance, our, our first set of adventures for the game. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like I have this wonderful crew of artists to, to work with continuously. Fantastic. Um, well, it's great when you have a group yeah. of people like that that you can work in for new projects. So I think it makes uh, an RPG set almost have its own, you know, kind of visual brand and style yes. that, that carries through all the books. So that's yes. that's awesome to see. Um, let's dig into the system now. So yeah. um, the game has a unique system, um, dice pool based. Um, there's loads of things I kind of want to talk about. Yeah. How, how should we best start talking about it? How, how do you want to introduce how what the game system is? So the, the game system is a is a pool uh, pool system dice pool system um, very much inspired by anybody who has any history or experience with RPGs. They're going to immediately notice the similarities to to White Wolf's uh, uh, World of Darkness system, vampire system. 
Um, that was the first role-playing game I ever played, so oh, I'm familiar wow. with it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so you immediately probably spotted the similarities there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I think the reason I chose that is, one, I'm I'm older, right? So I'm, I think a lot of my uh, history going back to those, those things, those moments um, where I was really uh, inspired by RPGs are from some of the er games from that era. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, the core of it, Vampire was the first game that I played that made me realize that RPGs didn't have to just be about stats and minis on a board and measuring out distances. Um, mm -hmm. To me, the most absolutely the most boring aspect of Dungeons and Dragons was trying to measure out ranges and area of effect. I am not a math <laughs> person. Um, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. never been a math person, and that mm -hmm. it just does not interest me. I was always mm -hmm. more interested in narrative, and cool. Vampire really did that well. Mm -hmm. And so, when it came to creating my game, uh, I, I had a lot of con early conversations with um, folks who were who were supportive of me in the industry mm -hmm. and talking about newer ways to approach storytelling game systems. You look at games like Fiasco or um, God, uh, um, Powered by the Apocalypse, games that are much, or, or the Fate system, you know, games that are very sure. much geared toward low dice, high narrative value. Um, mm -hmm. And and I was tempted by those. I really was tempted by those. But mm -hmm. there's also a, a component to Coyote and Crow that I really wanted for the game, which was that I wanted it to, to be a little crunchy. I wanted it mm -hmm. to feel a little bit like those 90s and 80s RPGs. Um, mm -hmm. part, of that, part of that is a personal preference, but the other part mm -hmm. of it too is, is that I think there's um, a slight prejudice in the indie game scene where, well, maybe prejudice isn't the right word. Um, there's a phenomenon I've seen in the, in the indie RPG scene where you have the hardcore folks who like love RPGs and they will pick up a, they'll pick up a two page RPG, right? And dive into it and absolutely love the hell out of it. And then you have these other folks who, unless it's on a, a glossy 300 page hardbound book at a, at a major game store sitting next to D&D, they ignore it. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't want my one swing at bat because I had to realize that like this game, I, I didn't know it was gonna be successful at the time, but I thought this might be my one swing at bat for an RPG. And mm -hmm. I said, if I'm gonna do this, I want to create a physical game that could sit next to D&D &D on the shelf on, at a game store. And so for that, I felt like I had to create a whole mm -hmm. vibe around that, whether yeah. it, was, it wasn't just the page count, it was the size of the book, it was the spot UV, it was mm -hmm. the all of the dice pool mechanics that made it feel like an epic game to sit down and play. And I think some of those, the, those uh, folks that are into the smaller RPGs, they're great, mm -hmm. but you don't get that feeling of epicness maybe that you do when you crack open a 400 page book. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So that was the idea behind making uh, the, the system. Um, yeah, so that, that was the core conceit there. Yes, absolutely. I want to, I want a big book in a, in a, in a game store that's sitting on the shelf that, that, yeah. And, and that is now, and that's where it is. So uh, yeah, yeah, mission, yeah. mission achieved. <laughs> um, so talking a bit more kind of about the rules, uh, I want to talk kind of about the, the characters and, and how that works. So as you mentioned, it's, it's a dice pool system. Uh, you have stats yeah. that are based around like strength, intelligent, and then mm -hmm. spirit. 
Um, one thing that really interested me was the, your progression in the game. So you don't kind of level up like you would in D&D if people are familiar, yeah. familiar with that. Um, could you talk about the legend system and your yeah. design choices around that? Yeah. Uh, th thanks for calling that out, by the way, because it's it, that's kind of my baby in the game. Um, oh, yeah? For me, yeah, it really is. I mean, the, a lot of the other stuff, you know, the, the dice pool system is great. And for mm -hmm. some people, that they're going to love it. Some I get. I love a people. dice pool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some people jam and other people it's not. Uh, so, mm -hmm. And I totally get that that's a preference thing. When it comes to mm -hmm. the legend system, um, I was never a fan of of Dungeons and Dragons, especially when the era that I grew up in it uh, with it, mm -hmm. uh, it was always, you know, an experience point was equivalent to a gold piece, you know, and, and, and that That's is yeah. it's such an incredibly colonial mindset. And so because what I wanted for these characters in this game was to create this sense of um, your stories, your characters' stories are going to be told around a fire seven generations from now. I wanted the characters to have this epic feel to them. And so rather mm -hmm. than creating a, an experience system or a progression system where um, you were, you were uh, growing as a character by either killing something or stealing something or acquiring personal possessions. Mm -hmm. I wanted to create a system that reflected um, uh, sort of narrative arc progression. So you, your character progresses as stories are completed. And mm -hmm. um, so in the game, you you do have stat or there's skill progression. There is stat progression. Those are what we call short-term goals in the game. Your character can progress in a skill. Um, and that's that's very low tech. Um, mm -hmm. But the actual legendary, uh, the legendaries uh, uh, levels in the game are more about uh, completing narrative arc as, arcs as a group. And not only does your fame grow as your as your legends grow, but the thing I love the best is is that when you create when you when you reach the end of that narrative arc, every player is expected to. Uh, uh, create a short narrative about what they did to get to that level, what sort of stories they went through. And they mm -hmm. always are supposed to write them as, um, as, as, uh, as though they're the primary hero in their story. And it can be a paragraph, it could be a, a poem, it could be song lyrics, anything they like. But then the idea is, is that when you all get back together as a group and you share these stories, they're all going to be slightly different because you're all perceiving the events of your adventures slightly differently. You're going to remember specific different key moments uh, from those stories. Mm -hmm. And um, I love the idea of that idea of collaborative storytelling and then coming yeah. back and seeing who remembers what and how do they remember it. Um, and that to me, that system speaks more to true heroic growth to me mm -hmm. and just a bump in strength, you know? Mm -hmm. Again, number crunching is boring for me. That's that's the <laughs> least important part of it. Uh, some of sure. the, the, one of the, one of the things I get pushed back on, so we have a mm -hmm. system in the game called Gifts and Burdens. Mm -hmm. I think if I remember right, we have a, there's a similar one in, in Vampire. It's uh, Flaws and Gifts or Flaws and... Uh, yes, yeah, if you're playing like a supernaturally type one. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a similar a similar concept where your character is, is um, either has uh, um, things that that help sort of boost them or draw them back that are external to their character, whether it's allies or friends and family or you know uh, mm -hmm. other other factors, right? So with gifts and burdens in my game, though, you have to take on a burden every time you go up a legendary level, and mm -hmm. I got a lot of pushback from players on that. They're like, "Why are you punishing okay. your players?" 
for going yeah. up a legendary level. And I said, mm -hmm. think about a hero's journey. They never defeat a villain without acquiring some new next hurdle. Maybe it's guilt for having killed the villain, or maybe it's the son of the villain wants to come back for revenge and now they have a new arch nemesis. But there's always mm -hmm. a new problem on the horizon. And if you, if you just simply eliminate a problem and then that's a clean cut, that's not really how life works. And it's certainly not mm -hmm. how epic hero journeys work. Heroes are always faced with new dilemmas. So mm. I decided to just to build that in right away. I love that. Um, yeah, I, I, it stood out for me as a really fun system. It's interesting that you say about burdens, though, that people feel that they were kind of punished by them. Because um, for me, it felt wow. more like a, a more of a opportunity to grow your character and have some sort of interesting narrative yeah. thing to them. Could you give yeah. some examples of burdens people have used and, you know, mechanically what impact that has? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the example you use in the book is like having having a little sister um, mm -hmm. and you can ha anybody can have a little sister and maybe it's not a gift or a burden. You could put that in your background. Mm -hmm. um, something is only a gift or a burden when it rises to the level of a mechanical effect. Mm -hmm. um, and so the one I, again, like I use in the, in the example in the book is having a sister. She might be a gift because maybe she's an engineer and she's going to help you build that hovercraft or repair that hovercraft that you really want. Um, mm -hmm. And so she's going to bring her skill set in. Um, but maybe she, she's a burden and maybe it's she's 13 and annoying as hell and always demanding her attention and always getting in trouble. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe she's both. Maybe she's a 13-year-old engineer who's a pain in your ass, but it's going to help you build that hovercraft. Um, yeah. So we have we have quite a few in the book. Um, mm -hmm. I don't. I, I try to list them out as suggestions. Um, sure. Part of of my my creation character creation building suggestion is that everybody do it at a session negative one even. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a pre session zero, sit down and collaboratively create your characters because. Unlike a lot of other RPGs, um, Coyote and Crow encourages uh, family and connections. Characters are mm -hmm. rarely sort of mercenaries meeting in a pub. I mean, you can do that if you want. Certainly, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. Mm -hmm. But just as often, I've seen characters create whole groups or players, rather, create whole groups of characters who are all family members. There's brothers, mm -hmm. sisters, cousins all working together. And it's good to establish those relationships when you're creating your characters. And so when you come, when it comes to gifts and burdens, um, you can have things like um, allies and opponents, uh, addictions, um, uh, wealth, uh, things that affect your wealth, either you're poorer or richer than average. Um, so there's a whole array of things to build into your character. And I find those work best if you're talking about them with the other players, mm -hmm. um, because especially if you end up being, you know, a brother and sister character, well, maybe you should both take that, that wealth burden then, or that wealth gift. Yeah. So that, that, that makes reflects sense. properly. Um, yeah. So I think that's those, those gifts and burdens in the game. We, we mm -hmm. did list out a number of them. I think there's maybe 10 in there, um, okay. but we don't limit anybody. Somebody can come up with complete their own completely, you know, we, we threw, we have one in there called quirks and I threw in okay. quirks because, um, and I, I have to thank my, um, uh, my sensitivity reader in there for this one, because we had a number of ones that were a little more specific. Um, and some of them went into like mental health issues. And mm -hmm. I was like, she called me out on it. She's like, you know, you're going to get in trouble for this. Like this is mm -hmm. the way you worded it isn't necessarily offensive, but I think you're putting 
you're you're putting labels onto something where you didn't need to. And if you just throw it in sure. there as quirks, people can choose to define it how they want. And that's really sure. what I wanted from the, the gift and burden system is to let people decide whether something is a gift or a burden to their character. There's mm -hmm. no objective value to these things. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned kind of a pre-session zero and session yeah. zero there. Um, for people that are planning to run this game or play it for the first time, yeah. um, what sort of guidance do you have for the guidance for people's session zeros or pre-session zeros? How would you say it's best for uh, yeah. someone leading the game to, to prepare for that? Yeah. So I would say when you get your group together, the first thing you want to decide is what sort of stories do you want to be telling? Um, unlike mm -hmm. a lot of RPGs, like Vampire is a great example of this, right? You know, you're playing vampires. You're probably going to be playing mm -hmm. in a specific town in a specific set of year, uh, a specific time frame. Um, that's that's very guided, right? Like you have a sense yeah. of what that story is going to be about. But with Coyote and Crow, you could literally do, um, you know, urban high tech noir fantasy or like high tech <laughs> noir sci fi, or yeah. you could do. Um, uh, a Dungeons and Dragons style exploration into the wilderness where you're going into the great unknown and you don't see anybody for months at a time. There, There's such a huge array of possibilities that you don't want your players to feel ambushed. So mm -hmm. my first suggestion would always be to, to decide on the, the tone and the setting and the location for your adventures in this game. Um, the second thing I would, I would say that's really important is um, Figure out at your table if anybody is native and if anybody is bringing in their specific native heritage, because that's an option in this game if you want to bring mm -hmm. your real world heritage into the game. Um, sure. And if not, if no one at the table is native, then talk about what you're not going to be doing at the table, how you're not mm -hmm. going to have anybody bringing in headdresses for cosplay moments, um, any of the really obvious stuff that would be offensive and bringing in crappy stereotypes. Um, mm -hmm. But I think. I think most of those, for I think people who are picking up Kite and Crow to play it, most of those folks yeah. are going in with a good heart and they're not going to be doing those. Yeah. You know, we, we um, call I, it out. Yeah. I mean, as for me, so I'm I'm white British and I have this accent. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm very much, you know, stereotypically the colonizer role. But I what I really appreciated was that you do in the book give guidance for non-native players on how to enjoy the game in a respectful way. Because I know... I looked at the book and I was like, this, this looks great. I want to, you know, I want to play the game, but I know I'm going to be playing a native character. And I felt a bit apprehensive about that because I was like, oh, I don't think I know enough, you know, to, to do that in a, in a good way. So I really appreciated that guidance that you gave and how you said, hey, no, this game is for everyone. You don't have to be native. Yeah. And and you kind of gave that guidance. Uh, and yeah. that's, that was really appreciated because that. Yeah, it really boils down to what, what I think is true mm -hmm. for any game, which is, is play them like mm -hmm. a human being, right? I think there's a lot yeah. of games out there. Um, you know, there's a lot more in like the Afrofuturist uh, uh, mm -hmm. genre right now that are going on. I think it applies there too. You know, the games are for everybody and just go in and play them as human beings and, and strip mm -hmm. the stereotypes out. Absolutely. I think that's almost a great kind of note to, to wrap up and end on. Unless, yeah. is there anything else about the game or the system that you'd like to kind of shout out or, or talk about? Any questions that I didn't didn't ask you that you'd love to talk about? Um, wow, no, you, you covered a lot. I think, no, I think, I think you've got it. I think we got it. Okay, great. Well, yeah. I do have uh, another question for you, though. It's sure. not about your game, because uh, we spent a little bit of time talking about Coyote and Crow. Oh, actually, yeah. I will say, if people are interested and they want to pick up a copy, where's the best place for them to go to, to get a copy of the book? I, I always answer for that one, your local game store. I'm a big supporter mm -hmm. of local 
local game stores. So if that's a possibility, mm-hmm. if you have the the option of going to a, going to a local game store, please do. Um, mm-hmm. After that, I would say go to my website, coyoteandcrow.net. Uh, we have a web store there. Uh, we only mm-hmm. ship to um, to uh, U.S. and Canada through that website, uh, mm-hmm. unless you're buying digital project products. Um, mm-hmm. However, we do have international distribution. So even if you're in the UK or elsewhere, you should be able to find our book at game stores. Also, we're on Amazon as well. So if, if Amazon is, is your go-to, you can find me there. Fabulous. Um, and my last question, which is yeah. it's not about where you can pick it up, was do you have any recommendations for any TTRPGs that you particularly like or that you're enjoying at the moment and the rules are it can't be a game that you've made and it can't be D&D for the obvious reasons. Yeah, so um, um, there are a couple um, and I, I can actually pull up the boxes here. Um, Fantastic, we love that. Visual aids as well. So if you're if you're watching the stream, you can, you can see them there. Alice is Missing, uh, not yeah. a traditional uh, TTRPG, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm gonna call it one. Um, mm-hmm. I love Alice is Missing. Um, yeah. For the uh, podcast, they're scrolling through currently a bookshelf full of many different tones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I've got yeah. a few back here. Um, yeah. Collateral damage. This is a little indie oh. one um, that a friend of mine made. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Daniel, but um, uh, have you heard of uh, uh, collateral damage before? I haven't, and this is also why I ask guests uh, for recommendations because these are people I invite on the next shows. So- yeah, so collateral. Really briefly, collateral damage is a game about um, playing um, in a movie. So you decide a movie genre you're going to play mm-hmm. in beforehand, but you yeah. are not the main heroes in the story. You are the background extras, and the oh, okay. the important thing is is for you to have the most entertaining and exciting death at some point in the movie, as the person who gets blown up in an explosion or stabbed in the back or whatever your horrible fate is. So there's a lot of humor in the game. Uh, it's yes. a lot of fun, and then it's always just a single session uh, at a time. And I, I love this game. Um, that and the other one great. that I love that you probably have, you probably know, everybody knows this one, but it's one that I'm hoping to write for one day. And that oh, yeah? is okay. um, uh, Free League's Alien, the Alien game. Yes, I love it. I love mm-hmm. it. I love the, the cinematic aspect yeah. to that game, and it's one that I really, really want to write for. Oh, that is a good pick. If anyone uh, watching is curious about the Alien game, we have had them on as a previous guest, so you can go and listen to that oh, episode yeah. if you want to find out more about that game and system and why we're both quite excited about it. Um, but that leads us to the conclusion. Connor, thank you so much for coming on yeah. and giving up your time to talk to me. I know you're very busy with many different projects going on. Um, if people want to catch up with new projects you're doing, uh, where's the best place to, to find you online? Uh, coyoteandcrow.net uh, has our news. We also have a sign up for a newsletter there. Okay, um, but we're at Coyote and Crow Games on most social media. Uh, we mm-hmm. also have a fantastic Discord. If you're interested in learning more and talking with good people about Coyote and Crow, uh, there's a link to our Discord on the main page of our website at coyoteandcrow.net. And you can go there and, and, and the people on our Discord are just lovely folks, full of, full of very helpful native folks. Amazing. That sounds great. And if you're listening to the podcast, we'll put the link to the Discord in the show notes so you can just click through there. That brings us all. Thank you very much, Connor, for giving it your time and, and coming Thank to talk you. to us. Thank you yeah. for everybody who came to watch or to listen. Uh, we'll be back when you are watching this. We'll be coming into October. So our October guests will have a slightly horror or spooky theme to these games coming up. Uh, but that's all for this week. Thank you very much for watching. Bye. Bye.